And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, talented musician and recording engineer, Adam Kamara, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. In this installment of Manifesto podcast, our manifesto is James Baldwin's 1949 essay, Everybody's Protest Novel. Uh, We're also, to set the stage a little bit, uh, going to discuss W.E.B. Du Bois' 1926 speech, The Criteria of Negro Art. And our art is going to be James Thurber's um, (laughs) The Greatest Man in the World which uh, I think Jake is going to give me hell about. Um, all right. Uh, so to get a, kick it off, you know, uh, Baldwin is, I think he's 24 when he's writing this, and he's writing it, it's an attack on protest literature more generally. It's an attack on uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, on didactic literature, and on Richard Wright. Uh, and his novel, Native Son. And uh, I think uh, to establish it, I just want to talk more generally about a kind of uh, ongoing debate um, within sort of uh, black writers about the relationship of art to politics. Now, the trouble with such things as the moral responsibility of the artist, which is a very grandiose way of putting it, that in order to begin to deal with such a subject at all, one's got to begin by being extremely reckless and extremely simple-minded. There's an excellent book by the philosopher Paul Taylor called Black is Beautiful, A Philosophy of Black Aesthetics, where he talks about how um, there had been this sort of... uh, notion within the Harlem Renaissance of, of a political strategy of what was called civil rights by copyright, right? Using literature and the arts to sort of um, prosecute a battle for civil rights on the train of expressive culture. Uh, it kind of, I think the idea is that, one, it was a way of gaining prominence, of putting forward an image of African Americans as, as full humans, um, uh, and also uh, kind of giving a, a full humans and his full claimants to yep. the American experience. And as sort of Taylor notes, in practice, this meant that the content of art was subject to political criticism, right? Um, and there was a kind of pushback against that around the time that Du Bois gave his talk. Uh, Charles Johnson had wrote that uh, you know art needs to be detached from pop- propaganda, sensitive only to beauty. Uh, to beauty. Um, and it's, 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 in many ways, I think, a debate that is sort of ongoing, right? Um, Tanezi Coates recently excoriated Kanye West uh, for Kanye's tweets in support of Donald Trump. 
uh, and he wrote, West calls um, his struggle the right to be a free thinker, and he is indeed championing kind of freedom, a white freedom, freedom without consequence, freedom without criticism, freedom to be proud and ignorant, freedom to profit off a people in one moment and abandon them in the next. Uh, and so what did you think about the Du Bois? So Du Bois comes in to sort of m- make a statement about really the role of, of – of, black arts in, in political yeah. struggle more generally. And, and Du Bois is coming from a position principally, as he admits in the piece, as a, as a, you know, a, a political activist, as a, a civil rights activist, early civil rights activist, not as an artist. So he's not writing as an artist. Um, you know, I think some of um, what he puts forth is quite powerful, and the argument that uh, Du Bois is making in terms of what the responsibilities of art are isn't something that can be, I think, um, quickly or lightly dismissed by a a kind of art for art's sake um, argument because, you know, what Du Bois is not arguing for is reductive, purely instrumentalized, polemical art. Right. You know, he's not making an argument that black artists have an obligation to take the talking points of a political movement and translate them right. into the language of art. He's making a, a more sophisticated uh, kind of argument than that. I have strenuous objections to aspects of it but it's not you know it's it's uh it's powerful in its way and um yeah he 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 lays out this idea that one it's not an either or that arts are a part of the struggle but not the only part right um and he (laughs) so the famous line from the speech is that all art is propaganda and he says i stand in utter shamelessness to say that where that whatever art i have for writing has been always used for propaganda, for gaining the right of black folk to love and enjoy. I do not care a damn for any art that is not used for propaganda, but I do care when propaganda is confined to one side while the other is stripped and silent, right? Um, and yet what he's saying is not, you know, he's not arguing for didactic fiction. In fact, there's there's a later bit where he sort of um, tells the audience they need to develop a Catholic, Catholic Catholicity, Catholicity, Catholicity yeah. of taste, um, a broadness of taste, right? And 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 um, to accept art that it, that it, at first blush might actually seem either not necessarily helpful or, or even sort of threaten the harmful. He says, um, uh, "You have got to build yourself up into that wide judgment, that Catholicity of temper, which is going to enable the artist to have his widest chance of freedom. We can afford the truth." White folk today cannot. Yeah, so that we is critical, right? Mm -hmm. Because the we that he's referring to is black Americans, and the black American we is the foundation of the expressive potential that he's pointing to when he talks about that Catholicity. So he's not – Du Bois is not arguing from a kind of – View from nowhere might be the the best way to to get across what I mean. He's not arguing for a universally accessible movement on behalf of black American experience. He's arguing for an expression of 
black American experience for for a certain obligation, an artistic obligation that emanates not from a universally accessible moral or political worldview, but that that issues from the particular experience of black Americans. And look, this this wider debate, right, about is art uh, something that that is only obligated to itself or to to aesthetic principles or does art have political or moral obligations is playing out here in the context of uh, the black American experience, but recurs, um, you know, in all sorts of different contexts. What Du Bois is saying that I think is, um, is critical and is really unique to what he puts across in the criteria of Negro art is that there is a distinctive um, black American humanity, a a black American experience different from the white American experience that needs to be fully expressed. Or that reveals aspects of the white American experience that the white American experience is in, is in, is lives in ignorance of. Those are both true, though, yeah. right? Uh, yes, yes. And of the American experience, yes. right? Uh, of the, the American experience that either transcends mm-hmm. or uh, merges the racial experiences, depending on how you see it. But, but yeah, yeah, that, that there is a a window through the black experience into a fuller appreciation of the social reality uh, of America. And he, he makes that point in a couple of places, and that sets it apart, I think, from what's going to come later in Baldwin. Um, it sort of both prefigures it and uh, establishes a, a very different set of... Um, Emphasis is mm-hmm. in the debate, and he he also sort of he, he he sets it up in such a way that it's not as it's 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 not as much of, of an either or because to be a good artist you need to be appealing to a kind of truth that will reveal things that are that are you, you sort of useful politically that you need to have an ethical framework every novel in order to actually engage the the full capacities of of, of the reader or the you know. Uh, person consuming the art, it needs to have a certain ethical framework um, and that if you are true, you know, if if you adopt a a sort of true and honest approach to that, the art will be complex, but it will put forward a, a, uh, an ethical idea or, or force, force the, 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 uh, the person responding to it to have an ethical response. And so, you know, he thinks it's the, the sort of pure aesthetics for aesthetic stake is in some ways naive. Um. Yeah, that's right. Um, in stanza six, and it's interesting how – I don't know if this is how the speech was originally written, but in the version that Phil and I are looking at, it's organized in paragraph into, six. Huh? Yeah, paragraph six. It's almost broken down into stanzas, but um, maybe paragraph six. He writes – if you tonight suddenly should become full-fledged Americans, and he's addressing a, a black audience here. If you tonight suddenly should become full-fledged Americans, if your color faded or the color line here in Chicago was miraculously forgotten, suppose, too, you became at the same time rich and powerful, what is it that you would want? 
What would you immediately seek? Would you buy the most powerful of motor cars and outrace Cook County? Would you buy the most elaborate estate on the North Shore? Would you be a Rotarian or a lion or a whatnot of the very last degree? Would you wear the most striking clothes, give the richest dinners, and buy the longest press notices? Even as you visualize such ideals, you know in your hearts that these are not the things you really want. You realize this sooner than the average white American because pushed aside as we have been in America, there has come to us not only a certain distaste for the tawdry and flamboyant, but a vision of what the world could be if it were really a beautiful beautiful world. If we had the true spirit, if we had the seeing eye, the cunning hand, the feeling heart, if we had, to be sure, not perfect happiness, but plenty of good, hard work, the inevitable suffering that always comes with life, sacrifice and waiting. All that, but nevertheless, lived in a world where men know, where men create, where they realize themselves and where they enjoy life. It is that sort of a world we want to create for ourselves and for all America. That's a long passage, but there's not That's many periods. <laughs> and I, and I, I felt like I, I needed to read the whole thing. But that gets across so much yeah. because it gets across the idea not only that there is a uh, distinctive black experience to which the black artist is obliged to express, which towards which the black artist has certain inherent obligations. Um, this is the argument that Du Bois is making here forcefully, but also – that the distinctive black experience is a way of of broadening, of increasing the humanity of an experience larger than the black experience, of a, of a, a more common humanity, of a greater beauty. But right. it begins in the particular before it broadens into the universal. Yeah, and, and, and you know, sort of the argument that a people whose humanity has been suppressed in some ways have a truer sense of of what it is about humanity that is very important because um, because of the oppression that the sort of broader sort of white America does not understand. And that that comes back up in Baldwin. We'll get to mm-hmm. this, but you know, Baldwin talks about the mechanization of American life. It's yeah. it's an echo of what the boys are saying here about the way in which um, yeah. Our glittering, mechanical, inescapable civilization, America, this country devoted to the death of the paradox. That's from the Baldwin. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, so that's um, – we could we could spend a lot of time just talking about the, uh, uh, the Du Bois, Du Bois, but just to sort of set up some of the, some of the aesthetic debates. And, yeah, and, and let me – I'll just make a final point. What's interesting to me about this and um, – and I hear this in the echo of current debates, not only, you know, with the Coates piece on Kanye West, which I, I really did not think highly of, to say the least, but um, in other debates around these subjects. Um, what's interesting to me um, at this moment is this intersection between the particular and the universal and the way in which uh, the obligation to one doesn't preclude the other, but in fact uh, enhances the other or, or, mm-hmm. or makes the claim of the, the other even greater. So, you know, there's sometimes a tendency 
um, among certain black conservatives or, or libertarians to, I think, cast aside any sort of collective obligation or collective narrative as a, uh, you know, an onerous burden on the individual or a, a form of sort of historical determinism. Mm-hmm. But, you know, collective narratives are, are what all people survive on. And, that, you know, the the idea that uh, that one can just cast aside all sense right. of collective identity seems to me a, a kind of illusion of... Uh, a very particular way of thinking. Well, it's it's the notion that kind of atomized individualism is freedom, right? Which I don't think it is. You know, I I, uh, I like um, the novelist Richard Ford very much. I think he's amazing. But, um, you know, I was, <laughs> I was talking to him once, and he said, uh, you know, I don't believe in character, right? I think you just have choices, and and then you have to live with them. And he said, you know, like I could I could you know walk out and shoot my neighbor, you know, if had a dispute with if I wanted to. And there's a thin sense in which that's true, right? Like, yeah, you, I can do anything I want at any moment. But the most important things in life, like, I mean, just very simple, like marrying someone, right? Raising a family. Like, a lot of these things are not up to you. They're about your um, joining yourself to broader collectives, right? Um, being a member of a, an organization, uh, military in our choice in, in yeah. our early early years of a nation of a church of what whatever it has like the way that human beings sort of self actualize is through um, you know attaching ourselves to broader collectives at which point you le- lose a certain point uh, amount of that sort of pure autonomy which can do anything at any moment or at the very least like. Not everything that you're going to get is is going to be purely determined along those choices. Right. Arguably gain a, a richer kind of individual identity. But even aside from that, just mm-hmm. in terms of art, art that aspires to a kind of pure universalism. Yeah. As with a any perspective that aspires to a pure universalism risks becoming watery and insubstantial. And, you know, I think – before we move on to the Baldwin, the, the, the point to me is the intersection of the universal in particular. And that's true in art as well as in political or in moral life. And, uh, you know, you can argue that there are ways in which um, Du Bois here, and, and I, I would argue could be um, restrictive and, and deleterious to the making of art, the kind of demands that Du Bois is making. But to go too far in the other direction and to suggest that one can shirk off all demands not only to group identity but let's say to the you know living, breathing, social, political world around oneself and, and be devoted only to art in the abstract sense, this isn't the formula for a greater, purer, you know, less tainted art. It's a formula for um, like totally – uh, uninteresting, you know, it's, it's a formula for art purified of everything that makes life interesting. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a, um, uh, do you know the, the French writer Francois Mauriac? No. So. Oh, he, no ease. That guy. No, no, no. You're thinking of George Perec. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, so he won the Nobel prize in 1952 Catholic writer. Mm. Um, 
And in his Nobel speech, I just pulled it up, he says, when I began to describe it, I never imagined that this little world of the past which survives in my books, this corner of provincial France, hardly known by the French themselves, where I spent my school holidays, could capture the interest of foreign readers. We always believe in our uniqueness. We forget that the books which enchanted us, the novels of George Eliot or Dickens, of Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, or of Selma Lagerlof, describe countries very different from ours, human beings of another race and another religion. But nonetheless, we love them only because we recognized ourselves in them. The whole of mankind is revealed in the peasant of our birthplace, every countryside of the world and the horizon seen through the eyes of our childhood. The novelist's gift consists precisely in his ability to reveal the universality of this narrow world into which we are born, where we have learned to love and to suffer. Hmm. We are sitting in this room and we are all, at least we like to think we are, relatively civilized. And we can talk to each other at least on certain levels. So that we could walk out of here assuming that the measure of our enlightenment or at least our politeness has some effect on the world. It may not. So, should we move on to the Baldwin? Yeah, let's get after the Baldwin, because there's a lot there. There's a lot. And also, I mean, they're both such, just, they're just so many individual lines that just... No, imbeciles. (laughs) No, fools and cretins that you are. A book will not make a plate of soup. A novel is not a pair of boots. A sonnet is not a syringe. A drama is not a railway. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just wanted to throw that in before we got to the Baldwin. That's uh, Gautier in 1835 defending the art for art's sake position <laughs> in a, a preface to Mademoiselle de Maupin. <clears throat> Uh, <laughs> Sorry, good. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Bourgeois poets yodel nonsense about boring absence. They think up funny ways for letters to sit on the page. Concrete bullshit, arty dumb shit. They are safe as old toilet paper. Revolution sweeps the world. Bourgeois artists stare at crumbs of dust in the light. People change reality. But these dull imitation poets talk to us of fragmented nothingness. So, um, yeah, so he, he starts out talking about Uncle Tom's Cabin, and which is a, an interesting choice. Be, I mean, it makes sense, but, um, you know, it's the... The anti-slavery novel Lincoln is supposed to have said when he met Harriet Beecher Stowe, you're the little woman who started this big war. Um, So, you know, it would seem to be a novel that has done a lot of good. Yes. Right? Just sort of... um, Unimpeachable for its social value, if for nothing else. Right. Aside from the art. Right? And... You know, his task that he sets himself is first to um, – I mean first to claim that it's a bad novel and actually ultimately an immoral one, right? Um, and he begins with this scene where one of the characters um, is uh, just sort of disgusted by 
slavery by what's happening, and she says, this is perfectly horrible. You ought to be ashamed of, uh, of yourselves. Miss Ophelia, as we may suppose, Baldwin writes, was speaking for the author. Her exclamation is the moral, neatly framed and incontestable, like those improving mottos sometimes found hanging on the walls of furnished rooms. And, um, uh, and then he moves from that to suggesting that that exclamation uh, is similar to a lot of sort of protest or political novels. Um, as one considers the novels of Negro oppression written our, in our own more enlightened day, all of which say only, this is perfectly horrible, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Uh, uh, he thinks um, they have the same kind of, 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 of character, which is that they're sentimental, right? Uncle Tom's Cabin is a very bad novel, having in its self-righteous, virtuous sentimentality much in common with little men, women. Sentimentality, the ostentatious parading of excessive and spurious emotion is the mark of dishonesty, the inability to feel. The wet eyes of the sentimentalist betray his aversion to experience, his fear of life, his arid heart, and it is therefore always, therefore, the signal of secret and violent inhumanity, the mask of cruelty. Yeah, and... Um you know, not violent inhumanity, but fear of humanity. Mm-hmm. Not a mask of cruelty, uh, but a mask you force on the world to conceal its cruelty. The indifference of nature is the note that I sent back to you when you first sent me yep. that. And I'm trying to put myself back in the position of what <laughs> I thought when I, I wrote that. But um, but the the critique of Uncle Tom's Cabin and of sentimentality here is... It's powerful and it's, it's, I mean, impossible to argue with in the context of this specific work, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is nothing but a kind of brute sentimentality, which makes no effort towards a Catholicity of a fullness of the expression of life and is purely instrumentalized, um, you know, the the interesting part here in terms of how he's discussing the sentimentality in relation to Uncle Tom's Cabin is that what's sentimental is not just this kind of um, condescending or, or paternalistic view towards um, black people. It's also the embrace of violence in it is another kind. The, the brutality is another form of sentimentality. And it's it's sentimental in the way that a kind of folk morality tale is sentimental when everything is either it's all hellfire or salvation, you know, and, right. and yeah, she, 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 she he, uh, he calls Uncle Tom's Cabin a catalog of violence. Right. And then he asks, like, you know, there's a failure of perception when she's just showing us brutality, unmotivated and sen- senseless. And then leaving unanswered, what he says is the only important question, what it was, after all, that moved her people to such deeds. Yeah. There's a, a, a part immediately following what Phil just read where Baldwin sort of sets up his criteria for, um, you know, if sentimentality is the enemy of art, then what is it? Uh, what are the duties of art? And, you know, he begins with, not surprisingly, truth. And he writes, let us say then the truth as used here is meant to imply a devotion to the human being, his freedom and fulfillment, freedom which cannot be legislated, fulfillment which cannot be charted. 
This is the prime concern, the frame of reference. It is not to be confused with a devotion to humanity, which is too easily equated with a devotion to a cause, and causes, as we know, are notoriously bloodthirsty. And then a little later, uh, he writes, uh, It is this power of revelation which is the business of the novelist, this journey towards a more vast reality which must take precedence over all other claims. A more vast reality is... Uh, a more vast reality, which is itself um, the uniform of truth, um, or I suppose truth is the what a more vast reality, the appearance of a more vast reality. That's what Baldwin is after. That's what he's saying art has to strive for. Right. Now, so the – well, first off, I, I would say is it <laughs> – is the most important question, the only important question, what motivates, what moves people to such deeds in art, right? If you're, if you're dealing with historical atrocity or, or contemporary atrocity for that matter, right? You know, um, he seems to be suggesting it's the obligation of the writer, the artist to consider – the feeling of the slaver, the murderer, the torturer, what have you. Um, and in some ways detailing how that person is like us. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, d- detailing how that person or how that person is unlike us also, mm-hmm. as the case may be, because his complaint about Uncle Tom's Cabin is that it never escapes – the moral paradigm mm-hmm. of the um, moral paradigm of, of white supremacy, let's say, of a, a uh, of a, a world in which it is for the white master to grant humanity mm-hmm. to the black subject. This is kind of his complaint. So, in in that case, um, you know, it's it's the the problem is that it makes us see only through this already established moral framework and and doesn't even try to break that moral framework. And, you know, what, what's most interesting about this, because look, Stowe, nobody's making any claims for Stowe as a great artist, right? Yeah. So it's it's no big potatoes to say Uncle Tom's Cabin is a crude novel. But what Baldwin's saying is not just that this is bad art, not just that this is a crude novel. What he's saying is that even as propaganda... Even as a pamphlet, it is ultimately um, harmful to the cause of black freedom, of black humanity, because rather than fully smashing uh, or fully escaping from the moral framework in which, uh, you know, a system of black inferiority exists – it merely seeks to reverse the reverse the polarity in that mm-hmm. system or to to create a a new hierarchy within that existing system and that in doing so it ends up reifying or reinforcing that system that's sort of the the greater claim and that insofar as it falls short of this higher 
truth that he's describing, it ultimately diminishes the humanity of its subjects. And so it's politically, in, in Baldwin's telling, politically um, counterproductive. Yeah. Have you, have you read the novel The Known World by Edward P. Jones? No. It's By the way, I don't buy that, that, that aspect of the Baldwin. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I have issues but, with yeah. it as well. Um, the, the, the Jones novel, which won the Pulitzer uh, when it came out, um, is it's a novel about a fictional county in Virginia uh, that includes one black slave-owning family, right? Yeah. And it's it's an amazing book, um, and it's a very painful book to read. And you would, <laughs> in some ways, when I first heard about it, I sort of thought. I mean, I think the, the first question, you know, why would you, why would you focus on that, right? Um, but it's it's. I think in 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 some ways, in in having that happen in the novel, it allows him to then explore all these other kind of aspects of the kind of structure of belief and the social structures that 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 support this kind of unbelievably inhumane system. And there are these really kind of powerful notes in 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 the novel where. Um, sort of there's kind of slippage between what people believe and their actions. And there's one character who's on a slave patrol uh, who for extra money, he's like a poor white in the South, and for extra money he would sometimes hobble slaves who had uh, tried to escape. And there's one slave who throughout the novel you you don't like, right? Um, and this guy, Moses, has tried to escape and so he... Um, uh, you know, he, he hobbles Moses and then says, after Odin had hobbled Moses, he got back on his horse. He looked down at the man writhing on the ground and at his own handiwork. Moses certainly could not walk back home now and Odin extended his hand down. He had gone out without a saddle that day. Odin said, he won't bleed long. Heft him, up on, heft him on up here. Everyone except Elias helped Moses up onto the back of Odin's horse. Lewis trembled to see Moses in pain. By rights, Odin could have made Elias the slave carry Moses, but he didn't like the evil that seemed to be building in Elias. He might have been able to make Lewis carry him if he hadn't been William Robbins' son, so it was just as well that he chose to carry Moses and not make a fuss about it. Heft him up. I'll take him in. He ain't gonna bleed long. Odin said that no one could hear him above Moses' cries. Odin would never put his knife to a man again. It was one thing to cut a man, collect money for a job well done, and go home and sup with his family. It was another to ride a long way with the man at his back, agonizing all the way in Odin's ear, the man's arms around Odin's waist, because the man had a fear, even in great pain, of falling off the horse. Hmm. And, um, you know, that's one of those moments in the book where he's asking you not just to look at the brutality and the after effects of the brutality, but also the kind of world that somebody who is the act you know the 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 author of that brutality a guy whose job is 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 hobbling slaves and who makes extra money for it and actually takes a certain degree of pride in his work mm. and this sort of slight moral realization which is not that slavery is wrong which is not even that the doing this work is wrong but just that he's not going to do it any longer mm. right and the the novel is sort of full of those kind of extremely human complexities where He's not just asking you to look at the brutality. There's plenty of, of brutality in the book. Um, but he's asking you very disturbingly to see 
the ways in which people who are functioning in a society that that depends on brutality function. Yeah. Yeah, because the the, the brutality by itself becomes a sort of backdrop, a panorama in a, in a morality play. It becomes too simple and um, too formulaic in a sense. I mean, is, is Baldwin's argument. The problem I have with what Baldwin's saying, um, not even getting into the ways in which a lot of this is really a young writer um, going after Richard Wright, which is what yeah. you know a lot of people do, and, and we can get into that more later, Richard Wright being the author of uh, Native Son, um, but uh, sort of the, the great black American novelist of his time who influenced Baldwin, Ralph mm-hmm. Ellison, Albert Murray, m- many other people who came after him. Um, the problem I have is that uh, what Stowe did could have been, I think, useful beneficial, a righteous sort of propaganda at one moment of time and yet seem crude, reductive, a betrayal of humanity in a fuller sense, in a, in a, a, at 50 years remove, at 100 years remove. And so if the charge against it as art is just, I'm not sure that the charge against it is uh, an expedient political messaging format is just and that maybe it is possible to separate the two to say that uh, it's better off forgotten as art at this point because it served its purpose but that doesn't to me invalidate the purpose it might have served at one point in time Um, where it gets really interesting um, and man there's so much in the Baldwin essay in, in everybody's protest novel it's really rich, and this is Baldwin is a very young guy. I think the first thing he ever wrote for Partisan Review, then he wrote another sort of follow-up on this uh, two years later also for Partisan Review. But you can already see how the immense talents as a writer here. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was 24 when he wrote this. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, it, it's it's clear here the kind of... Uh, intellect and the kind of talent as a writer you're dealing with, but um, but it's also clear if you know a little bit of the backstory in terms of the position that Richard Wright occupied as the preeminent black writer in American letters at that time, that this is in part a young man, um, you know, cutting down uh, the guy looming over him to make his own place in the world. Yeah, and 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 I, I agree with you. I think, like, like obviously, there's a role for instrumental messaging, right? That is not going to rise to the level of of, of art when you're dealing with sort of political issues. Um, and I I think it's you know he I wonder if you like sat him down and like you know if you could would you like take this book out of history? I don't I don't know that. I don't know whether he would say yes or no, like, um, cause it seems like it, it served a, a sort of good purpose, right. In, in, in energizing a certain type of kind of abolitionist sentiment. But I think more so than like the question of whether this book served at a particular time, it's a way of thinking that is all too common when we think of politics. Right. And he, he kind of gets at this where, you know, he, he talks about our passion for categorization, life neatly fitted into pegs, right? 
And when we're looking at this sort of backdrop of brutality uh, that is unexplained, where there's no kind of entry point for us into understanding the system yeah. and people's place yes. in it that generates brutality. One, it makes it more difficult, I think, to to diagnose what's wrong because we're not interested in understanding it. We just want the sort of visceral emotional shock of disgust. Yeah. And the other thing is, and he says, you know, it also uh, is comforting, right? Uh, and, he, and he accuses the protest novel of being a comforting aspect of the American scene yep. because, he says, whatever unsettling questions are raised are evanescent, titillating, remote, for this has nothing to do with us. It is safely ensconced in the social arena where indeed it has nothing to do with anyone so that finally we receive a very definite thrill of virtue from the fact that we are reading such a book at all. This report from the pit reassures us of its reality and its darkness and of our own salvation. And, quote, as long as such books are being published, an American liberal once said to me, everything will be all right. Yeah, no, and there's a very uh, powerful passage where he describes how that works with Stowe in particular. And what he's writing is that for Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, God and salvation were her personal property, mm-hmm. he says, Purchased with the coin of her virtue. Yeah. Here, black equates with evil and white with grace. If, being mindful of the necessity of good works, she could not cast out the blacks, a wretched, huddled mass, apparently claiming, like an obsession, her inner eye, she could not embrace them either without purifying them of sin. So in order to speak on behalf of the the poor downtrodden blacks, he's saying um, it required that they remain poor and downtrodden in her worldview, that, that, you know, they were the coin of her virtues. Uh, Yeah. um, You know, it's it's funny in a um, (laughs) – I I think that is a – like it's it's a useful thing to have a chip to play. Um, I – Sometimes experiences when I'm talking about the book, I, I had an event where, you know, somebody was like, why are we even listening to you? Because I wrote a book about the Iraq war and yeah. why it's from the perspective of soldiers. And I think, you know, instead we need to be hearing the the um, uh, the victims of, of U.S. imperialism. And I said, well, there's there's some good books out of you read um, uh, Son Blossom's book, The Corpse Exhibition. No. Have you read uh, Frankenstein, Frankenstein in Baghdad? Um, uh, there's a good oral history that Mark Kirk has put out. Um, you know, no, no, no. And at a certain point, it, it became very apparent to me that this person had no interest in actually listening to Iraqi voices, but they did like to be able to leverage the suffering in Iraq as part of a moral claim. Yeah. Um, and... I don't, know. I don't have much patience <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you should have much patience for that, though. I think it's a, a fairly common move these days. Um, I want to say uh, one of the things that's so striking to me in the Baldwin essay, and we got to get to the ending um, where he mm-hmm. deals with Wright directly because the way in which Baldwin connects Beecher Stowe and Richard Wright's novel is canny and like – you know, um, well, well, K- Kenny isn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't shrug it off. But there are a couple other things. One is, it's really fascinating to me that the other novel he invokes, and Albert Murray actually, and Albert Murray's mm-hmm. 
Al Murray, the, the great American man of letters, author of um, the brilliant essay, The Omni-Americans, and also a, an essay on Baldwin I'll get to in a second. Um, Murray holds this against him. It's a lack of erudition, Murray says, in the works of literature that Baldwin cites in this essay. Now, meanwhile, Baldwin's like 24, but okay. But it's fascinating to me that what he cites as a form of sentimentality analogous to um, Uncle Tom's Cabin is The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is a noir novel by James M. Cain, mm-hmm. James M. Cain, who also wrote Double Indemnity. But it's such an interesting, um, it's such an interesting comparison um, to to hold that up as another example of a kind of flattening sentimentality, and it, it actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, Cain sure. is the opposite kind of sentimentality—a bleakness, a, a, a sort of unremitting cynicism as opposed to the moralizing of Stowe. But in the same way, it's one note. It's incapable of dealing with the fullness of experience because the fullness of experience would um, would overwhelm this kind of... Sure. Well, there's, there's a... Um, you know, I had a, a Shakespeare professor once who talked about how, you know... King Lear was seen by the, the Victorians as just too bleak a play. And so there was a n- different version of King Lear where, like, at the end, Cordelia comes back on stage and she's alive and, and he, she marries, um, you know, one of the he- heroes. And, uh, you know, we laugh at that now, right? Like, they couldn't deal with the real darkness of King Lear. And then in the 60s or 70s, there was a sort of famous production of Lear that um, – uh, and the guy who did this was influential for uh, Polanski too, uh, who did a um, Macbeth. But and it's a like darker King Lear, right? Even darker than Shakespeare's Lear. And there's this scene where Gloucester's eyes taken out, and in the in the play, um, his eyes are torn out, and then the servants like you know lead him off stage. And they're kind of trying to be kind to him. They want to apply a poultice to his eyes. And they're talking about how terrible it was. You know, The same servants who had helped like, tie him up to, to have his eyes ripped out before. And in the, I think it was 1960s production, you know, Gloucester is kicked off stage, right? Is it Gloucester? Is Gloucester the bad guy? Wherefore to Dover? Because I would not see your cruel nails pluck out his poor old eyes nor thy fierce sister in his anointed flesh stick boorish fangs. The sea with such a storm as his bare head in hell black night endured would have buoyed up and quenched the stellar fires. And the professor was saying like, you know, this is our version of Cordelia being alive at the end, right? Right. Like we make it darker right. and it actually makes it easier no, because no. we not we're, we when we see that we know that what we're seeing at a sort of unconscious level is not reality. And so we kind of enjoy it as a kind of arty darkness kind of thing, but it's not painful because in reality most of us are not the guy ripping out the person's eye and most of us are not, you know, the servant who tries to protect him. Most of us are the servants who like Help bind the guy and then afterwards are like, oh, that was really terrible what they did. I'll apply a poultice yeah. to your eye and, and still feel like a human being, right. right? 
and it's a different kind of comfort. It's a different, yeah. Or it's the same kind of comfort coming, you know, coming in a different, <laughs> in, a different way. in a different direction. And it'll it provokes the same simplistic moral response where we know exactly where we stand. We're better than what we're seeing. Right. Uh, a reaffirming of all the basic propositions. Uh, uh, presumptions, a, a reaffirming of, you know, a totally untroubled worldview that into which that fits very neatly without yeah. requiring any agonizing or reflection of any sort. The highest expression for me of the Baldwinian ethic that he's getting across um, comes in this section where he writes, society is held together by our need. We bind it together with legend, myth, coercion, fearing that without it we will be hurled into that void within which, like the earth before the word was spoken, the foundations of society are hidden from this void ourselves. It is the function of society to protect us. But it is only this void, our unknown selves, demanding forever a new act of creation which can save us from the evil that is in the world. With the same motion, at the same time, it is this toward which we endlessly struggle and from which endlessly we struggle to escape. Um, Now, interestingly, in his essay on Baldwin and specifically on uh, this, uh, everybody's protest novel, Albert Murray, and his essay is called James Baldwin, Protest fiction and the blues tradition. Murray actually goes after he goes after Baldwin for a whole number of things, but one of the things he goes after Baldwin for is for committing the same sins that he accuses Wright and Stowe of, um, committing the same sins in his own fiction, and hmm. um, you know basically the the gist of uh, Murray's brief against Baldwin is that he too reduces life, that he makes it uh, too comforting, too reaffirming of sociological priors. And uh, in particular, he says uh, this now, I'm quoting from Albert Murray, intentionally or not much of what he says, he being Baldwin, Much of what he says implicitly denies the very existence of Harlem's fantastically knowing satire, its profound awareness and rejection of so much that is essentially ridiculous in downtown doings. Um, And I I probably started that quote in the wrong place. I should have started it sooner. But basically what Murray is saying is that Baldwin can't deal with the the richness of the tradition that Harlem creates, uh, the living tradition, the folk and artistic traditions, because to do so would be to elevate it too much above a position of abjectness that is um, the, the literary conceit that serves him. This is Murray's brief, and I think it's worth reading the, the Murray essay in full and not just as a way to cut Baldwin down, but as a way to see that the argument that Baldwin's making, that, that these are eternal perennial concerns in art, yeah. right? And that somebody who can most brilliantly expose the failings of the instrumentalized uh, or mechanistic art in one moment 
can absolutely be guilty of it themselves the next because these aren't conditions of a person. It's not that either you're a a truth-producing artist or you're a propagandist. It's that in every moment, in every sentence, you know, it's an aspirational quality. You are trying to create this truth which always eludes you, which always requires effort, and that in trying to create it, if you slip up for a moment, if you allow yourself to idle into a certain kind of complacency, you will absolutely produce the thing that you yesterday attacked the other writer for. Yeah, <laughs> that's what's you know? really hard to do. Um, and also that that most great books have failings of this kind within them. I mean, you know. Uh, you, absolutely. Right. Yes. I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, no, and... and, and and, and oftentimes there'll be great artists who, who, who use them as foils or, or um, it, it, where it's, it, it feels hard to disentangle, um, you know, someone's failures from their, their um, you know, the things that, that uh, are great about them, right? Yeah. No, listen, there, there's a, um, a novel by – or excuse me, there's an essay by Irving Howe, the great – uh, American critic, editor of dissent, Irving Howe, um, where he goes after Ralph Ellison's mm-hmm. Invisible Man. Um, that's, for, that's a bold for, move. It is a bold move. It's, you know, Invisible Man is Ellison's great novel. It's one of the great novels of the century. Um, and and uh, Howe basically faults it, among other things, for failing in its social obligations. And Ellison, in turn, in yeah. his collection of essays, Shadow and Act, um, eviscerates how, but in going back and rereading the how essay, it's it's not quite as clumsy as I had remembered it, and in part what it reminds me of because listen, Invisible Man is this enormous novel, you know, not in terms of length. I think it's only like four hundred fifty pages, five hundred pages or something long, but not super long. But it's this enormous novel in terms of its its generative ability, in terms of the world it creates. It's just worlds yeah. within worlds within worlds in Invisible Man. And actually, that's one of the things that Howe gives Ellison credit for, is that life-giving ability, that world-creating ability. Um, but, you know, there are more and less powerful and more or less convincing worlds within Invisible Man. And how specifically false the depiction of Stalinists. I thought you were going to go there, yeah. Yeah. And, how, uh, <laughs> and, you know, that, that, that may be – now, how had his, his reasons. Not he was a total anti-Stalinist, but he certainly knew that milieu well uh, and so could have called out a false note more easily. Um, but it's just to say uh, whether or not Howe's right in this particular case that in, within a single work of art – you can contain both uh, the complacent, the propagandistic, and the expression of a greater truth, um, you know, maybe even on the same page. So it's the, the final section of Baldwin's essay that deals with uh, Richard Wright and his novel Native Son that actually, in a sense, 
uh, reveals to you that everything leading up to this section, this whole brilliant, elaborate edifice, this whole uh, brilliant argument about the obligations of art and truth and beauty and stow, in some ways is all leading to this, not a takedown of right, but this conclusion about right. And essentially what Baldwin is saying is that in the way that right gives in to the same sentimental impulses that corrupt Stowe's work in Uncle Tom's Cabin, he ends up reproducing the same effect in the world. And what Baldwin writes is, below the surface of this novel, and the novel here is Native Son, which is considered uh, the great work of black American fiction at the time, sort of the towering literary work and is both a protest novel and a literary novel. It's understood as such. So Baldwin writes of it, Below the surface of this novel, there lies, as it seems to me, a continuation, a complement of that monstrous legend it was written to destroy. Bigger is Uncle Tom's descendant. Flesh of his flesh, so exactly opposite a portrait that when the books are placed together, it seems that the contemporary Negro novelist and the dead New England woman are locked together in a deadly, timeless battle, the one uttering merciless exhortations, the other shouting curses. Now that is um, a harsh, you know, that is a, a, a brutal judgment to pronounce on the preeminent uh, black writer of the day and on uh, a novel which, for whatever its faults, I think, is, in literary terms, a far, far greater achievement yeah. than Uncle Tom's Cabin. But Baldwin, it's all leading up to this in a sense. Mm. Bigger Thomas is the, the protagonist of Native Son, and it's all leading up to this moment. Where and Bigger Bald- Thomas is sort of... Is, is is like a character designed to be um, in in a way if you were feeling constrained and the necessity of putting forth like a virtuous black character to show for he's designed to be not that right um and right, and Baldwin is saying he is so much designed to be not that that, that it's he's the same that he right he's merely the the inverse corollary, the twin of right. um, uh, of the character in Uncle Tom's Cabin. For Bigger's tragedy is not that he is cold or black or hung- hungry, not even that he is American, black, but that he has accepted a theology that denies him life, that he admits the possibility of his being subhuman and feels constrained, therefore, to battle for his humanity according to those brutal criteria bequeathed him at his birth. But our humanity is our burden, our life. We need not battle for it. We need only to do what is infinitely more difficult. That is, accept it. The failure of the protest novel lies in its rejection of life, the human being, the denial of his beauty, dread, power, in its insistence that it is his categorization alone which is real and which cannot be transcended. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, the... Okay, so first of all, uh, it is a protest novel, Native Son, and, and, uh, you know certainly can be criticized in those terms for being reductive. But what if 
you're dealing with a character who is battling for their own humanity, for it, for whom that is an internal struggle. I mean, it's not yeah. clear to what extent it's right being faulted here uh, and to what extent it's the character being faulted for engaging in this struggle. And uh, double consciousness, which is one of Ellison's great themes, is in a sense a struggle within the individual sure. to recognize the capacities, the fullness of their own Humanity and, and uh, you know, well, I, I think of, of uh, the speech in Crime and Punishment about destitution. Ah. Right? Mm. We're saying, you know, poverty is not a vice, but destitution is. Mm. And, and uh, the characters, it's the father of the, 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 the love interest in, in that novel. I forget his name. Um, but his, his argument is basically like destitution is so consuming, that sort of pressure that you feel as an individual, it so constrains what you can be. As a human being, um, and I think, you know, I, uh, you know, for, for Baldwin, you know, our humanity is our burden, our life. We need not battle for it. I don't know if that's always true. Right. I don't know if that's always true either. Though there are various levels of interpretation <laughs> for that, and you know, it seems to me that, and on. One level it's true, on another level it's not true, and I think that there's a a kind of deliberate deliberate vagueness here that because uh, the the object here is not a a kind of analytic precision; it's a, a lyrical truth, and it's a you know a takedown of of right in a sense, and not for sport. I don't think Baldwin is doing this for sport. I think he's doing this to try and enunciate a real artistic principle and a real aesthetic and uh, aesthetic moral principle. Um, but I, but that's not neatly separated from yeah. the desire to do so at the expense of the person before you who was, you know, insufficiently great in their in their art and life. Um. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, so. What would this? I guess what would art look like if we followed the dictates of this manifesto? And what would I guess more more generally like? Because <laughs> it's not just how to write novels, but I think it's also like the approach that we take to the world, right? Um, a kind of re- re- rejection of. The reductive, the didactic, the instrumental, to always assume that someone is lying to you when they establish these kind of clear and firm categories. But let's talk about it just in terms of art. Salvation, yeah. What you're saying is true, but it, it's hard enough to talk about it in terms <laughs> of art. In terms of art, I would think to begin with that um, it would mean that the arts in which you find that you can immediately place yourself mm-hmm. in which the borders of your conscience aren't blurred or troubled at all needs to be rejected because yeah. if it costs you nothing, if it costs you not even a bit of discomfort, then it's sentimentality. And the sentimental is the enemy of life, is the enemy of truth. And so it would mean that there always needs to be not anguish necessarily, but a, like a frisson, a, a sense of uh, uh, dynamism at the least in yeah. art that is challenging. So, I, I, and, and 
also no clear moral, right? You know, I was thinking about um, uh, the critic uh, Mikhail Bakhtin was talking about Dostoevsky's characters, right? And he writes, they're not voiceless slaves, but free people, capable of standing next to their creator, capable of not agreeing with him and even of rebelling against him, right? And, you know, Dostoevsky uh, was talking about his critics uh, in, um, in, in the... Brothers Karamazov, because Dostoevsky was a believer, Orthodox, and, and the Grand Inquisitor chapter is in some ways like an anti-Catholic screed, but all this brilliant um, uh, discussion of sort of faith and instrumentality and organization of society. And he gives Ivan Karamazov this intense critique of religion. And Dostoevsky wants to respond to his critics and he says, the dolts have ridiculed my obscurantism and the reactionary character of my faith. These fools could not even conceive so strong a denial of God as the one to which I gave expression. Right. I mean, this is, I, what is more powerful in Dostoevsky than the imprecations, than the challenges to God? I mean, it's far right. more powerful in a sense than the, the mystical mm-hmm. – resolutions in, uh, in religious truth. The, and, and I think and I think part of the, the worry for that is you as the writer create things that will go beyond your intention, right? Like it has to. Um, I think of the sort of O'Connor talking about, as I mentioned before, like the, the, the writer's greatest tool, their eye, right? Like uh, and not necessarily their intellect. Like it's not about constructing a sort of philosophical argument. It's about, you know, kind of letting all the all the buzzing flies in. Yeah. And and sometimes that means that the the impact of your work might be very different from what you would want it to be. Yeah, troubling. Which is, which to also, you. which is also I think the danger, right? And I think that the 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 the, the uh, constant appeal of didactic work um, because you know, when you're talking politics, you're talking things that have real repercussions in people's lives. And there's this real strong desire to create a work of art that is going to very clearly, de- you know, deliver people into the right way and manage their kind of emotional reactions and, and kind of intellectual reactions to what's happening so that you have guided them towards, you know, the right and the just course. Yeah. Now, and, and listen, Baldwin's hardly an apolitical writer. And in fact, you know, his position, even in terms of art's obligation to politics, evolves throughout his life. Sure. But um, this is not a plea for a kind of um, stoicism is the wrong word. It's it's not a, a plea for a, a monkishness. Yeah. It, th- that's not Baldwin's position and it, it becomes even less so later in his life. But if we're talking about what would this look like if implemented, look in a way like the exact opposite of the ethic that's taken hold in a lot of art these days and which holds that art's highest obligation is to enforce the moral precepts of the moment, the political moral precepts of the moment. And so that art art that is um, not only, let's say, endorsing or supporting views that are considered retrograde or uh, immoral, racism, sexism, whatever, um, but even art that is insufficiently strident in its position on those matters needs to be cast aside, to be excised from, from public view. I mean, that's for real. That's not like 
conservative propaganda saying that's a real ethic in the arts world now and among some artists. I was just talking to a guy who's a, uh, not going to give his name out, but he's a professor at a, a prestigious university. I think he's an adjunct because he's actually an artist. Um, but he's teaching somewhere for the time being. He's in an arts program. And he did a, a course, a semester on sort of controversial artists, mm-hmm. art, arts that incited controversies. Now, this guy is like a sort of generically left-wing bohemian type. And he, one of the works that he showed was Pina Bausch, you know, the no. dancer, choreographer. She's brilliant, uh, almost positive she's German. She might be Austrian, but she's a choreographer and she had a dance company. It's like these brilliant dances. And there was a, there's a good Vim Vendors documentary about her. Anyway, she's like hardly a reactionary or, you know, she's a dancer. She said something at some point that was like ambivalent or vaguely hostile towards feminism in the way that an iconoclastic artist, like, I won't give myself over to any ideological creed, you know, something like that. And the students in this guy's class were like, we have to get rid of this. Not, we disagree. This should be excised from the curriculum. These are college students at a a major university, and I I think that they're echoing, you know, it's easy to beat up on college students, um, but let's take seriously... The things that they say, especially when the things they say coincide with a kind of dominant ethos. And the ethos is that art's highest obligation, in a sense, its only obligation, is to a kind of rectitude and political purity. Well, how would you deal with, I mean, I think of, you know, the kind of parental debates around, um, like, Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's it's... You, you can't read that novel and not see that there's kind of deeply racist characterizations of... of I agree. Yeah. Um, you also can't read that novel and not think that it's a work of, of genius uh, a, and whatever your feelings about the aesthetic quality, it's clearly deeply important in just kind of the... the kind of literary history, right? And, and, yeah. And deeply influential... Um, and I mean, sort of my take on that sort of thing is, especially if you're, if you're teaching it, right, is I do think you, you have a responsibility toward addressing, um, addressing some of the attitudes that it, that it puts sure. forward, right? Um, I don't think that it's, it's, I don't think that you can purely, um, kind of disconnect and say, well, we're just interested in, 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 uh, in the brilliant parts, um, and ignore the 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 impact of of the other aspects. No, you have to confront all of it. But this guy who's teaching Pina Bausch, his point to his students was: the answer here is not censorship; it's critique. And I'm saying, if you're going to get rid of Conrad, what are you going to do with Richard Wright? What are you going to do with Native Son, which features rape as a central part of it? Rape is central to Native Son, right? As it is to Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice, mm-hmm. as it is to, you know, not a, that's another work in the kind of black political literary pantheon. Um, but are, are there works of art that are so hideous and immoral that they're outside uh, 
the, the possibility of you know aesthetic redemption. Birth of a nation. Maybe I, I'm not. I, I wouldn't say you shouldn't teach Birth of a Nation, though. It's an yeah. important, it's a historically consequential artifact. My answer to all of this is: it needs to be critiqued, and that when you grant these things supernatural powers, you mystify them. You know, when you say uh, Heart of Darkness needs to be excised, first of all, you don't eradicate it from uh, from the, the the archive of human knowledge, uh, what you do is you create these sort of occult mystical qualities around or you don't get rid of the ideas within it. You mystify them and that if the point of art is to broaden life, if, if we take Du Bois seriously, if we take Baldwin seriously, um, you know, I, 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 I don't think that, uh, the first impulse should be to evaluate every work of art in terms of its adherence to the political commitments of the present moment. That's not to say that there are no works that had been in the canon which ought, which you know, need to remain in the canon forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the first criteria of judgment in these works of art can't be the political. Uh, if we want to hold to any of these broader values of life, principles of life that Baldwin is enunciating Mm -hmm. and that make art worthwhile and faithful to the human experience. Also that makes sort of the rich human experience that that Du Bois talks about, right? That like that kind of broader outside of the political, this kind of broader conception of the human being that is actually what people are owed as human beings. Precisely. And that that's what's interesting in the Du Bois, right? Is that Du Bois is saying that the greatest propaganda, the true propaganda, um, and you can see, of course, how this would be abused or misinterpreted, yeah. but the, the ideal for Du Bois is that the greatest propaganda is actually broadening of life, broadening of experience, not crudely reductive and crudely instrumentalizing. Um, And that's certainly worth grappling with. He would have been a really big fan of Twitter. Um, (laughs) We want to know our own souls and the myriad-sided souls of others. And then to imagine what might be if what is should grow what we wish. So, are you going to yell at me for the story selection? No, I'm not going to yell at you, Thurber. Okay. James Thurber, the greatest man in the world. Right. So again, I always, I always try and pick something that I feel is um, different from what's being advocated for. Hmm. Uh, I really like Thurber. Um, this is it's the greatest man in the world. Um, He's a comic writer, wrote a lot for The New Yorker, um, and it's a story uh, that came out in 1931 and during the kind of aviator craze of Lindbergh and um, Amelia Earhart and all that, all that stuff. And the opening, opening sentence um, – opening two sentences set it uh, – a couple sentences set it up. Looking back on it now from the vantage point of 1940, 
One can only marvel that it hadn't happened long before it did. The United States of America had been, ever since Kitty Hawk, blindly constructing the elaborate petard by which, sooner or later, it must be hoist. It was inevitable that someday there would come roaring out of the skies a national hero of insufficient intelligence, background, and character, successfully to endure the mounting orgies of glory prepared for aviators who stayed up a long time or flew a great distance. And then it, it describes basically this total reprobate um, Smirch, uh, Jack Smirch, erstwhile mechanics helper in a small garage in Westfield, Iowa, who flies this ridiculous contraption monoplane all the way around the world. And as he's making his flight and people slowly realize that he's actually going to make it, the whole country gets incredibly energized and really hmm. excited. And, you know, it's very clear that this guy is soon going to be, you know, the the biggest hero in America. And, you know, reporters go to dig up everything they can about this guy. And it very quickly becomes apparent that he is a lout, an, an utter lout. Right. Um you know, and, and it's... Typical, no good, Nick. <laughs> yeah. Typical Thurber, you know, and the descriptions are just sort of, you know, when he, you know, when he, he, he um, launches off. Smirch, however, after calling a girl in Brooklyn who worked in the flap-folding department of a large paper box factory, a girl whom he later described as his sweet patootie, climbed nonchalantly into his ridiculous plane at dawn of the memorable 7th of July, 1937, spit a curve of tobacco juice into the still air and took off, carrying with him only a gallon of bootleg gin and six pounds of salami. And the, the, whole, the whole thing is written in that. It, yes, so that's one of the passages that I – reading it, I thought to myself, eh, insane <laughs> for me. And it, because it's too – it's too like uh, – too sort of punchline-y. I felt like the other parts of it are funny. But you want to finish how the story ends? Yeah, and, so he he comes back and he's so exhausted – they just sort of take him off, and, and reporters have been digging up information about him and then lying in their reports about him because they can't tell the truth, and they sort of think like, oh, they're going to talk him into it or sort of explain how you're supposed to be a hero, and instead he's just arrogant, he's insulting to other aviators. To the president. To the president. You guys, he says in the Times Man Wins, you guys can tell the cockeyed world that I put it over on Lindbergh, see? Yeah, and made an ass of them two frogs. The two frogs was a reference to a pair of gallant French flyers who, in attempting a flight only halfway around the world, had two weeks before unhappily been lost at sea. Um, and then he, he, you know, he's like looking forward to making a lot of money, and uh, you know, he's in this room where they've got the president there and all these sort of officials, um, and he's making all these just really crass statements. And they and, can't get him to play along right. with, like, hey, you got to act like a decent person and right. not be so insulting so we can make a hero out of you. Right. And there's, like, crowds below ready for him. And then, like, the president gives this kind of imperceptible nod to, I think it was, like, the secretary of the mayor of New York. And the guy just runs and throws him out the window. Uh, and then they have this funeral for the greatest hero in the, in, in, in the world. Yeah. I like that part where they killed him. That was yeah. <laughs> that was good. Uh, yeah, listen. Um, in terms of how it's written, I thought you know parts of it were funny and and sharp, uh, but that part actually that you read where he gets in, it's the salami and the gin. It's too much, you know. It's too much of a like set up punchline, set up punchline. I felt. Um, Though the I liked the outline of the story, 
the most interesting part of it to me, I have no idea. I sort of have an idea how this relates to Baldwin, <laughs> but I don't know how to talk about it. But the most interesting part to me in a way is this relic of a media that still exercises a real gatekeeper role. Yeah, and, um, that was t- to me as well. Uh, this, this, I, and very elite, anti-populist notion of like how important it is that decorum, the reporters, and you know, be, like reading this right now, it's it's there's a way in which it, it it's already a pretty broad story, but you read this right now, it's very easy to read Smirch as like a Trump character who has ascended to fame and celebrity. In this sort of same kind of like, you know, he's, you know, Smirch does it via um, flying around the world. Trump being a sort of media, media spectacle and reality TV show, you know, sort of celebrity who part of whose appeal is his own. Yeah. Uh, own ob- obscenity, actually. Yeah, like yeah. the fact that he'll say oh, that's, crude that's and, precisely it. Right. And so the the media, which believes itself and is exercising this gatekeeper role. But you know, if you want to do the Trump thing, and when I Googled the story, I saw there was some stuff written making the comparison during the campaign. Right. But if you want to do the Trump thing, then you have to wonder, in the Thurber story, yeah. who is the media protecting? Who are they serving by killing this guy right. because he won't play the hero properly? Who are they, are they? Are they protecting the American people who would be devastated if they realized that their hero was so crass? Or are they protecting themselves? Because, in fact, Smirch would become a people's hero. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the bar, you know, they might get burned down or chased out of town if people realized that uh, a Smirch character could make it to the top. It might threaten the gatekeepers. Right. Well, you and know? Smirch is, He'd be too popular. is likable, actually. Right? Like, there's a way sure. in which he just... He just <laughs> he's, he's the only character who's alive in the story. And he's the only character who speaks honestly about what this absurd circus is. That's right. So the, the, right. the, the gatekeeper media role is to feed the masses the sort of reductive view of how things work. Yes. That serves them. That would that is the sort of thing that <laughs> that that um you know Baldwin would critique. Um the, the perspective of the story is entirely on the side of, except in the fact that, that Smirch has so much life, is entirely on the side of, of the elites and, and kind of contemptuous of the masses. Yeah. I'm, um, um, it's, the story is on the side of the elites and contemptuous to the masses? I think so, yeah. Oh, I'm not sure about that. You think it's on Smirch's side? I think that it's having fun at, at the expense of okay. both of them. I think that, as you're pointing out, Smirch is the only one who's honest about his own interests. I don't think the elites come off well. I don't think, no, I don't think the media that's crassly manipulative and that, it, it, and that is also led around by this guy that's yeah. purely reactive, they don't think he's going to – they don't think the flight has any chance of success. The moment they do realize it has a chance of success, they immediately pounce on it. It doesn't fit the narrative they want, right. so they then constrict. They don't come off well. There's a there's a great line. So the 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 reporters interview um, Smirch's mother. She's like, "Out of hell with it! I hope he drowns." Right? And they're like, well, "We can't use that." And then, you know, as the authorities, you know, 
Uh, here we go. The authorities were convinced that the character of the renowned aviator was such that the limelight of adulation was bound to reveal him to all the world as a congenital hooligan mentally and morally unequipped to cope with his own prodigious fame. I trust, said the Secretary of State at one of many cabinet meetings called to consider the national dilemma, dilemma I trust that his mother's prayer will be answered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And listen, I'd read this story, you know. Um, this is like... I also thought when I was reading this, you know, and the aviators was like the celebrity thing of that moment. I was actually, maybe it was just because I was I was doing an article for the New Yorker on Eric Greitens at the time and, and the kind of seals. A very good article. People should go read that. Thank you. That Jake helped me with. Um, you know, I, I when I was doing that, it didn't make it into the article. It wouldn't have fit. But there's a bit where Rob O'Neill, the Navy SEAL who took credit for the killing of Osama bin Laden, um, is on Fox News discussing our diplomatic posture to North Korea. And I was watching it. I was like, this is, there's no difference between this and like Gwyneth Paltrow dis- dispensing advice about, you know, steaming your vagina or whatever. Like it's the same, just like I'm a celebrity and therefore as a celebrity, I'm just going to pontificate on yeah, that's right. whatever. And people, will, there's going to be a certain amount of seriousness that people are going to take it with that is zero to do with any kind of expertise and purely to do with. No, that's totally right. And, and if uh, soft guys are offended by that comparison, they should go back to being quiet professionals. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Yeah, I, it just occurred to me there is one way to uh, to sort of hook this back into Baldwin and the, the idea of the protest novel and arts obligations and all that. <clears throat> and that is the cane, actually, because... Mm-hmm. Baldwin's criticism of, of James Cain and of the postman always rings twice. Or is it double in, No, he criticizes double indemnity as being sentimental, which, again, like, was very interesting yeah. to me because I never would have thought of mm-hmm. that together, but it makes sense in the way he frames it. That style of crime writing that Cain exemplified, which was a sort of um, very bleak, cynical... Uh, crisp patter um, kind of writing that, uh, you know, there's a, a, there's another sentimentalist crime writer, I think, Jim Thompson, who's most famous probably for the getaway. The Dime Store Dostoevsky. The Dime Store Dostoevsky, exactly. Yeah, I like his books. Yeah, I'm not a Thompson guy because, it, because I find Thompson sentimental in mm-hmm. much the same way. The best crime writers to me are the ones who know how to be funny sometimes. Mm-hmm. Nobody is... Separate from detective novels, let's consider detective novels a separate genre for the time being. The best crime writers, Charles Williford, Goodis, are able to be funny. People say that Thompson can be funny. I don't tend to see it. But there has the, there's a humor mixed in with the darkness, a humor, you know, a, not necessarily like a burlesque, a crime burlesque, but a... a, a uh, a way in which the, you know, the the life of the novel is greater than its kind of genre constraints. There's a, a funniness to it, a, a weirdness to it. It's something that's squirming out of its own uh, self-definition. And you get that in the way, I think, um, that it's funny, that it's that it's yeah. witness to the irony of its own situation in a way. So one of the reasons that I that I picked the story. I mean, one, I just sort of wanted to um, use something that was dealing with politics in, in a very different way. And I think the, yeah. the humor actually is, is, is effective in that. 
And there's a way in which because the humor offers you a way into liking this character, sort of like seeing why, like there's a way in which the greatest hero in the world is ironic, but then there's also this other way of like, what if this guy, what if the things about him that the elites hate is precisely what would make him the greatest hero in the yeah, world, right. right? If he was ever let loose. Right. Um, there's a way in which even though every character in it is stock, like there's no, there's no, it's just two-dimensional everybody, right? But there's something about the way that he, he plays him off of each other and the style that generates something that, you know, I don't think this would fit at all into Baldwin's conception, but I think the story works. Yeah, it works. It's, it's just sort of, it reads to me like a fable, you know? It reads to me like... Um, right. It has the quality of sort of the intersection of like uh, parable and broad comedy. And um, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, but it it's sort of um, identifiable by a like a, a rhythmic repetition and a kind of tonal repeti- repetition that's – listen, I, I don't – I don't have anything terribly bad to say about this story. I don't have much to say about this story one way or the other, to be honest with you. All right. Well, on that note. And until that moment, until the moment comes, when we, the Americans, we, the American people, are able to accept the fact that I have to accept, for example, that my ancestors are both white and black, that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other, and that I am not a ward of America. I am not an object of missionary charity. I am one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. And if that happens, it's a very grave moment for the West. Thank you.